Uh, sermon passage today is Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. It's page 855. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said, Answer her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge, humbug. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned his nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer, ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with, Humbug. Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned to the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this merry Christmas? Out upon merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. <laughs> uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you, much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew, Christmas among the rest. 
but I'm sure I've always thought of Christmas time when it's come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. Well, so goes part of the opening scene of Charles Dickens' classic holiday story, A Christmas Carol. That wonderful interchange between Scrooge and his nephew really sets the stage for the rest of the story, if you're familiar with it. The next 150 pages or so are really Scrooge coming to appreciate his nephew's position on Christmas. And Dickens' little tale raises the question that we come to celebrate or to, to ask this morning, and that is, why do we celebrate Christmas? For Scrooge, who sees the world purely in terms of financial profit, the answer is that there's really nothing to celebrate. For his nephew Fred, who's pretty clearly a stand-in for the author's point of view, we celebrate Christmas because it's the time of year when people are decent to one another, when people stop and think to take care of the poor as they ought. But what about you? If you're celebrating Christmas this season, what exactly is it that you're celebrating? Maybe you're excited because this is the time of year when family comes together. You get to spend time with loved ones that you don't normally get to see. Maybe you just like a break from the intensity of your work schedule. Maybe you just like the fact that it's something different, something to break the monotony. Things aren't routine. There's special nostalgic music on the radio. The, the decorations and the lights make the world seem beautiful. Or maybe as you sit here this morning, you don't find Christmas much of a reason to celebrate at all. Maybe you're going through a difficult season of, of loneliness or depression or loss, and somehow it seems worse at Christmas. What I'd like to do with our time this morning is, is look at the, the part of Luke's narrative that Sam just read for us and see why it is that the coming of this child, why it is that the gift of Jesus born of Mary, is such good news, something worth celebrating. And I just want to point out that in your bulletin, the title of this sermon is The War on Christmas. That has nothing to do with anything we're going to talk about this morning. So, you know, I have to figure out these titles a few weeks in advance, and sometimes I, I just, you know, I just get them wrong. So I had another great plan to, to talk about something totally else, different, but, um, you know, so if you're wondering, like, when am I going to get to that? It's not going to happen. But... I do have three things I would like to see. That's the one thing I wouldn't like to see. The three things I would like to see this morning. First, let's see that at Christmas time, God intervened in the world. So God intervened in the world. Second, let's see that at Christmas time, God intervened in the world personally. And then finally, let's see that at Christmas time, God intervened in the world personally on our behalf. I think if we see those three things, we'll have a good answer to the question, why should we celebrate Christmas? So first, at Christmas, we see that God intervened in the world. And you see that in our passage in Luke chapter 1, really in verses 26 uh, to 29. 
So if you have your Bible open, you see there in verse 26, Luke tells us that this story, this, this exchange between the angel Gabriel and Mary took place in the sixth month. Well, the sixth month of what? Luke has just spent most of chapter one telling us about Mary's cousin, an elderly woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was old and she was barren. She had been unable to have children. Miraculously, we see earlier in Luke one that she has become pregnant. Mary doesn't know this yet. The angel's gonna tell her at the end of our passage. That child, that miraculous child that, is, that Elizabeth will give birth to is, is John the Baptist the prophet who will be the forerunner of Jesus's ministry. And so as we sort of drop into the middle of the story here in verse 26, Luke is telling us that it's about the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. We read there in verse 26 that one day, quite without warning, an angel named Gabriel appears to a young woman named Mary. We're not told what she was doing when the angel appears. We don't have any indication that she was sitting around waiting for a, a celestial visitor. And this story might be familiar to you if you've read the Bible or, or, or heard Christmas carols or, or even seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But it's possible that it's so familiar to us that the shock and the surprise of these events might be lost. On paper, though, Mary hardly seems like a, a good candidate for something this supernatural. Right? She's young. She's probably about 14 years old. She is uneducated. She's poor. Right, just speaking from human terms, it would seem more probable that God would choose to send an angel probably to almost anybody else on earth rather than this young woman. But suddenly, with no warning, an angel appears and starts talking to her. No wonder there in verse 30, the angel has to start out by saying, don't be afraid. Right, this, is, this is a terrifying interruption. Right? Her normal daily routine is interrupted uh, by this heavenly visitor. But this abrupt entrance, this sort of sudden unexpected intrusion of, of heaven onto earth is really a perfect beginning to the Christmas story because Christmas is all about God intervening in our world. It is the story of God stepping in. Again, Mary, by all accounts, wasn't looking for an angelic visitor. As far as we know, she, she hadn't spent her life pining to be the mother of a miraculous baby. Rather, God is the actor here. He is the one who moves and sets everything into motion. Right? Gabriel didn't come on his own. He didn't come just because he had this desire to spill the tea and, and tell Mary a story. Right? No, we, we read there in verse 26, he was sent. It says, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. When you step back, this fits exactly with what we know about God from the Bible. God, as he reveals himself to us in the scriptures, is a God who pursues. He's a God who takes action, who intervenes, who, who seeks out his people. You see this all through the Bible, right? From God telling Noah to build an ark so that he can safely ride out the flood, to God's call to Abraham to, to leave his homeland and go to a place he didn't know, to God appearing to Moses in a burning bush 
and inaugurating the great deliverance from slavery in Egypt, all through the Bible, what we see is that God has a plan to bring salvation to his people, and he takes initiative to make it happen. And here's the thing, it has to be that way. Because the Bible tells us, and when we're seeing ourselves clearly, we, we kind of already know that if we were left to our own devices, we would never search out God. We would never seek him out any more than a lost sheep goes and finds its shepherd. The, the human condition is such that it's our instinct to hide from God. Right? When God created human beings, he made us to live in his presence. He made us to enjoy his beauty and his love. But when humanity fell into sin, right, when we rebelled against God and decided to live for ourselves in our own way, right, when we decided we wanted to live as if we were God, the very first consequence we see on the pages of Scripture is that the first human beings hid themselves. They, they wanted away from God. And that has been passed on to us as Adam's descendants we don't naturally want to be around God. We might think we do, but we really don't, right? Any more than you want to be around your boss when you have failed to finish a project that was due two weeks ago. You don't want to be around God any more than a criminal wants to be around a judge or a traitor wants to be around the king that he's betrayed. So we're certainly not as bad as we could be. We're made in God's image and as such, as such are, are capable of all sorts of love and, and goodness and kindness. But the, but the Bible describes us fundamentally as God's enemies, as people who are opposed to him. And so we're both unwilling and unable to make things right with God on our own. We're unwilling because we, are, we know that we're the problem. We know that we've wronged him. And we're unable because... We can't fix it. We're the ones who have sinned. We can't make that right. And so if God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't take initiative, if God doesn't pursue, if he doesn't intrude on the world at Christmas, well, we'd be left forever dead in our sins. We'd be forever God's enemies. But what we see here in Luke chapter 1 is that God did pursue us. God reached out to us in love. That's one way in which Christianity is really different from all the other world religions, all the other, really other ways of understanding the world. A lot of people believe in God, but, but many don't have a category for him being involved in the world. Right? The, idea is that he's, the idea that he's doing something in the world, that he has a plan that he is carrying out is, is foreign to many people. Uh, many religions give you a path, a way that you can work your way up to God, a way for you to reach back up to him. The, the picture is God is sort of sitting back, waiting to see what you do, waiting to see if you make a case compelling enough to be allowed into his presence. But Christmas shows us something very different. It shows us that God intervenes at Christmas, we see our loving God pursuing us when we could not pursue him. Now, if you're not a Christian, I wonder how you think you should go about finding God. Do you think of yourself as something of a, a spiritual version of a world-class mountain climber? And you are making it all the way up the peak to where God is waiting for you at the top. 
Or can you see that you're more like a drowning swimmer, desperately in need of a boat to come and rescue you? Friend, is it your plan to find God on your own terms by your own goodness? Or can you perhaps see why Christians think that it's such good news that God didn't wait for us to come to him, but that he came to us? That, that he sent the angel Gabriel to tell Mary that she was going to have a son. Can you see how much better that is? I realize it might offend your pride a little bit to be told that, that you actually can't climb that mountain. But God's way of doing things is so much better than the delusion of thinking that you're the solution. For those of us who are Christians, just notice briefly here that when God acts, he also speaks. God is about to send his salvation into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he acts, he speaks, he explains. God didn't simply sort of get Mary pregnant. He sent an angel to explain what was about to happen. Again, this is consistent with what we see about God in the scriptures. God intervenes, he acts, and when he does, he explains. He interprets for us. When God made the world, he told Adam and Eve what they had been made for, what they were supposed to be doing, how they were to live well. Again, he told Noah what was about to happen and how he should live. The same with Abraham, Moses, David, on and on. As our creator, God has the authority to interpret the world for us. He tells us what it's for, what he's doing, and how we should live. When God acts, he speaks, and God's people respond as Mary do or Mary did. Uh, there in verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. So we celebrate Christmas because God has intervened in history. The second thing for us to see this morning is that at Christmas, God has intervened in history personally. Look there in verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. When God intervened in the world to save us, he did so personally. He did not dispatch an angel to save us, but he sent his son to become a human being and to accomplish the work of salvation. Right, the theological term for what happened here at Christmas time is incarnation. God himself took on human flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, the child born to Mary, was fully God and fully human. As Luke says there in verse 31, he was born a son, but he's the son of God. He is God. And he came in the flesh. Jesus was born like any other child. He wasn't hatched. He wasn't beamed down here. Mary gave birth to him like she gave birth to all of her other children. And so what we see is that there are two natures in the Lord Jesus Christ, a, a human one and a divine nature, existing in him perfectly, 100% divine, 100% human. Now, you might be thinking, why would God do it that way? 
Why would God take on human flesh? Why would he get involved personally? Why not just raise up another Moses or David, some really great person who can carry things out? Why did he have to take on human flesh? Why did we have to be saved by, by a divine man? Well, I think in order to understand that, you need to take a step back and understand other things that the Bible tells us about human nature. You see, the Bible tells us that each one of us is a sinner because we're all descendants of Adam. Adam, the first man, sinned against God. And that warped bent of soul has been passed on to each and every one of us. Have you ever thought about how extraordinary that is? That 100% of human beings don't need to be taught how to sin, how to be proud, how to, how to be angry, how to be lustful, how to act like we're the center of the world. It, it comes naturally to all of us. And the Bible says that's because each one of us is born of Adam. We are in this line of sinful people. Each and every one of us has been born into sin because we participate in Adam's nature. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So one man, Adam, sinned. The consequences of that is death. And so that sin nature and the death that comes with it has been passed on to every one of us. I mean, again, think about the diversity of humanity over the years. Think about how many different kinds of people have been born, right? Different cultures, different perspectives, right? Different experiences. And yet, of the billions of people who have lived through human history, 100% of them have been sinners. And 100% of them have died, right? That's that's what the Bible is saying here. That's because we are born as human beings in Adam's line. We are all dead spiritually, and we are dying physically. The only way we could be spiritually made alive is if someone made it possible for us to be new, to be redeemed. And friends, that's what Jesus came to do. At the incarnation, God became man. Jesus identified with us. Jesus is a real, true human being, not a hologram, not a robot, but a real man. His experience of this world was like ours. He tasted the things that we taste. He was tempted by sin like we're tempted by sin. He was sad. He was happy. He was tired, just like you and me. But Unlike you, unlike me, unlike Adam, unlike every other of the billions of people who have lived in human history, Jesus is the only one who didn't sin. This is really important. This idea that, that Jesus experienced what we experience. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, speaking about Jesus, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, in every respect. That is to say, Jesus had to be made like you in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The fact that Jesus is God come in the flesh, it's not some abstract point of theology. It's the only way that he could be a suitable redeemer for human beings. 
He is merciful because he knows what we've experienced. He's a faithful priest because he can represent us before God the Father because he is one of us. Because he's sinless, he can make propitiation for our sins. He can offer himself on the cross in our place. Jesus was fully human. But it's obvious from our passage that he's not a normal man. As we're told here, Mary will conceive, not in the normal way that human beings conceive, but rather by the Holy Spirit. Her son will not be the son of a human father, but the son of God himself. And since he's not conceived through normal means, he, he's also not born with our sinful nature. In that sense, Jesus is not a son of Adam. He's not a, a descendant of Adam. He doesn't inherit Adam's sinful nature. In his life of obedience, he becomes for us a new Adam, as we sang earlier. A second Adam from above, who reinstates us in God's love. He stands at the head of a new humanity. All of us, born into Adam's sin, can now, by this new Adam, be delivered and redeemed from sin. The virgin birth of Christ, it's vitally important to the salvation that God is bringing. It's not just God showing off his power. It's not just some cool trick. No, it's the way that Jesus could, could share our nature and yet not be conceived with, with sin. Now, you may or may not be aware, but this little story in Luke 1 is ground zero for a, a theological controversy that raged uh, about a century back. It became fashionable in many Christian circles to say things like, well, the Bible is true when it comes to matters of, matters of doctrine or, or morality, but it's not literally true. And people would point to things like the virgin birth, the idea that Christ was born of a virgin, and they would be like, well, look, we've kind of, kind of progressed past all of that now, haven't we? Like, like we all know that doesn't happen, right? Only, only a superstitious moron would believe something like that. But I think it's important that we reject that kind of thinking for at least three reasons. First, as we said, it, it's not theologically inconsequential. The virgin birth is essential to our salvation because it is the means by which Jesus is born as a, as a full human being yet without sin. The second reason we need to reject that kind of thinking is that it really reflects our attitude towards the entire universe. Right? One of the most sort of foundational issues in your understanding of the world you live in is how you'd answer the question, is this an open universe or a closed universe? That is to say, when you consider the world around you, when you look at the sort of physical, obvious, visible phenomena in your world, right? The, the chair you're sitting in, the lights above you. Do you believe that that is all that there is? That there's, there's nothing to be known, that there's no true experience beyond what you can see, touch, and understand with your senses? Yes, there might be things you don't understand, but, but there are things you could understand given enough time and, and education. If that's what you believe, that this stuff around us is everything there is, then, then you believe in a closed universe. Nothing happens from outside. There is no intervention. God never acts if he exists. There is 
nothing supernatural. But as Christians, we believe in an open universe. There is something. There are many things, in fact, beyond what we can perceive with our senses. There is a reality beyond what we see and taste and touch. And that reality is God himself, the creator of all physical reality around us. And as a result, we're not surprised when God intervenes. We're not surprised when God does something supernatural. If God exists, surely he can perform miracles. As Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. To reject the virgin birth because it's not our normal experience is to reject out of hand the idea that God can do whatever he wants to do, that God can do things that seem impossible, that there, are, there is a, a supernatural reality that can invade our world. Right? Unless you're prepared to say, look, there cannot be anything beyond what I can personally know and understand and perceive, right? which is essentially saying that you're God, you're omniscient, you know everything, well, then you can't say that the, the virgin birth didn't happen. Our faith is not indefensible. It's not unreasonable. Uh, is the virgin birth extraordinary? Well, yes, of, of course it is. It's kind of why it's such a big deal, right? If it was something that happened all the time, it really wouldn't get mentioned here. But, but realize, this idea of a virgin birth, it didn't make sense to Mary either. It's not like she's some backwoods yokel who doesn't know how babies are made. It's not like she's some superstitious, gullible rube. No, when Gabriel tells her the news that she's going to have a child, she had questions. There in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Right? So, of course this is extraordinary. It was extraordinary to Mary, but in the end, she accepted what the angel told her as the truth. And so the, the third reason I think we need to reject those who would say the virgin birth is, is impossible or superstitious is that really that, however we approach things like this, like the virgin birth, it will, it will reflect our attitude towards the entire Bible. Right? There really isn't any wiggle room here. Either you take the Bible at face value or you reject it. If the Bible isn't reliable at this point, well, then it's not reliable at all. If the Bible is just telling us tales here, then everything else has to be called into question as well. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then I have no reason to expect that he died on a cross for my sins. No reason to think he was raised from the dead. No reason to think that he will come back to save his people and usher in a new world. There is a great danger in coming to the Bible and picking and choosing the parts that you agree with. How, how do you determine? How do you judge what's true and what's not in the Bible? Is it just your personal opinion? Is it things that sort of line up with your expectations and your beliefs? Are you so wise that you will judge God? Are you so learned that you stand over the Bible as its authority? Well, friends, the Bible stands over every one of us. God has revealed himself in his word, and our response is to say, like Mary does there, let it be to me according to your word. God is a personal God. 
When he intervened in history, he did it personally. He sent his son to be one of us, to be among us. A Christian, can you see how great our God is? A God who would take on human flesh, who would stoop, who would condescend like this. It's utterly unlike anything that man has ever thought of. It's, it's so offensive to our sensibilities. It so upends our notions of greatness. Here is a God who treasures us so much that he does not wish to remain at a respectful distance. He doesn't, he doesn't stay back dignified and aloof, but like the father running towards the prodigal son in the story that Jesus told, his love compels him to come after us personally. Christmas is a time to celebrate because God intervened in history personally. And as we conclude this morning, let's see also that God has intervened in history personally for us. You see, all of God's love and power, it's no benefit to us if it's not applied on our behalf. Look at the end of verse 32 and, and the beginning of verse 33. We read there about Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel announces the baby Mary will miraculously conceive will be a great king. And he tells Mary two important things about his kingship. First, he says her son, Jesus, will sit on the throne of David. David was the great king of Israel about a thousand years earlier. He wasn't just any king. He was the king. In scripture, he's called the man after God's own heart. When he ruled over Israel... The people of the nation, they, they knew that God's reign was present. When, when David ruled over Israel, there was peace and faithfulness and prosperity and justice. It was, in many ways, the golden era. And though David's rule eventually ended, God made a promise to him that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. So we see in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that is to David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here in Luke 1, Gabriel is telling Mary that this child of hers will be the fulfillment of God's promise made to David a thousand years earlier. He, he tells her three things the angel does that reflect what we see in that promise in 2 Samuel 7. In verse 32, he will be great. This child will be great. In verse 32, he will be the son of the Most High, the son of God. And then in verse 33, the Lord will give him the throne of David and he will reign over Israel, over the house of Jacob forever. But you know, this great Davidic king, this great king that God had promised would come in David's line, he was not going to reign just over the tiny nation of Israel. And Mary, if she knew her Bible, knew that the prophets and the Psalms had prophesied that this son of David, when he arrived, he would have a rule that extended not just over Israel, but to the whole world. So for example, 
in Isaiah chapter 11. We read that in that day, the root of Jesse, so Jesse is David's father. The root of Jesse is this descendant of David that had been promised. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Many of the ladies of our church studied the Psalms together this year, and so you saw this promise there in Psalm chapter 2. We see the Lord saying to his son who sits on the throne of David in Psalm 2, 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Again, in Psalm 72, David's son Solomon prays for the, the royal son in, seven, in Psalm 72, verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So when Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus is going to be the king in the long-promised line of David, the one that Israel has been hoping for, the king who will reign forever, as it says there in verse 33, it's the culmination of centuries of promises that God's been making to his people. It's the culmination of, of centuries of waiting. Here, Israel is languishing under Roman oppression Right, the closest thing that they had to religious leaders were the, the hypocritical and oppressive Pharisees. But God is about to intervene personally in history on their behalf. He is about to reverse their fortunes. He's about to take the people on the bottom, a young, poor girl in a backwater province in an occupied country, and through her, he's going to bring greatness this tiny, insignificant nation was about to be the epicenter of a quake that would shake the whole world. This son born into David's line would bring people into God's family, not just from Israel, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Instead of simply placing a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem to rule over Israel, the Son of God was born in the line of David to sit on the throne of the whole universe. Jesus is that great king. Now, it's true that he didn't come as most kings come. There are a lot of surprises in this birth narrative that the great king would come in the form of an infant, that as this descendant of David grew, he didn't behave like most kings. Right? Most kings want to be treated well, like they are royalty. But Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to deliver his people, not through military conquest, but by offering up his life in their place. Jesus, the king, didn't come to defeat the Romans. He came to, def to defeat the, the forces of evil in the universe. He came to defeat your sin. He came to defeat even death itself. He took on human flesh and lived in poverty. He was betrayed by one of his friends. He was handed over to his enemies. He was beaten and mocked and put to death on the cross. And in that moment, it looked like he was anything except the king in the line of David who would rule over the whole world forever. As he died there, not as a consequence of his own sins, right? He's the one man who's ever died who didn't deserve it. 
But he died there offering up his life as a sacrifice in our place, as our substitute, taking our punishment on himself. And then he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he is seated there in the throne room of heaven and he will come again to judge the nations and to usher in a, a world completely under his rule. And friends, at that moment, when that happens, everyone will see and will know what Gabriel tells Mary here, that Jesus is Lord, that he is this great king who sits on the throne. Brothers and sisters, that's why the baby's name is Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua means God saves. That's, that's the mission of this child, salvation for the world. Salvation for us. Salvation for anyone who will believe in his name. So why celebrate Christmas? Well, because God has intervened in the world. He's sent his son to be one of us, to die for us, to rise for us, to return and reign for us. And friends, this is really important for us, for you. Maybe you've spent your whole life ignoring God acting like you're the one who can save yourself, acting like you ought to be on the throne, if not of the whole universe, at least the throne of your own life. But friend, the good news is that God hasn't waited for you to come around. He hasn't waited for you to climb up to him, but he has come to you. And so today, the Son of God is inviting you in, inviting you to enjoy his rule and his reign. He's inviting you to enjoy citizenship in this heavenly kingdom to enjoy forgiveness for your sins and eternal life. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can put your trust in him today and receive this great salvation as a gift. And for those of us who have been brought into the kingdom of this child through faith, can you see you've been given the best gift in the world? You've been given the one thing you most needed the one thing that you absolutely could not provide for yourself. You've been given the gift of eternal life and peace with God. God's salvation comes to us here in Luke chapter 1 with the greatest show of love and power imaginable. And so we can have great confidence that God cares for us and that he is able to provide for us. Think about it. If he didn't hesitate to send his son into the world to die for us. Christian, what exactly is it that you need that God is going to be unwilling to do? Or what are you going to need in your life that God will say, yeah, no, that's too much. I love you, but I don't love you that much. If God sent his son into the world to save us from our sins by dying for us on the cross, what good thing won't he give you? If Jesus is willing to die under a curse for you, what exactly is going to be a bridge too far? And Christian, if God sent his son in this most impossible way, born of a virgin, what exactly are you going to face in your life that he can't handle? What's a problem too difficult for him to solve? As Gabriel says there in verse 37 to Mary, Nothing will be impossible with God. Christian, do you believe that? Is, that? is that how you walk through your day? 
knowing that, that God loves you enough to send his son for you and that nothing is impossible for him, you realize God intentionally sent his salvation in a way that is impossible, right? There, there are two categories, broadly speaking, two categories of women who cannot have children, right? Virgins and women who are past childbearing age, right? And so it's not coincidence that the arrival of God's salvation comes with Elizabeth, an old woman, having a child. Uh, you see here in verse uh, 36, Gabriel informs Mary. He says, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. Right? And, in the sixth, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Right? God is highlighting his power to do the unexpected, to do the impossible. Can a virgin have a child? No. Can an old woman have a child? No. But God's making it clear that there is nothing impossible for him. Christian, that's the world that you head out into. A world where the God for whom nothing is impossible has committed himself to you in love. And he's withheld not even the best gift from you. You walk out today into a universe where the king reigning on the throne loves you so much that he died for you. That's a reason to celebrate. That's why Christmas is a season of such joy. And it's this great gift of love that we celebrate together each week at the Lord's Supper. As we come to the Lord's table, we remember the body of Jesus broken for us, pictured in the bread. We remember the blood of Jesus shed for us, pictured in the cup. And we remember that what God promised through the angel to the virgin has become a reality in our lives. God has intervened in our world personally for us. Let's pray.